Blog Talk Radio.
Collins famously saying, no jacket required. I think you can go without shoes. <laughs> Well, good afternoon, everyone. Today I want to review our latest updates on hospitalization rates and ventilator data and what these numbers might mean in the larger context of our curve. But before we get into the data and the trends that we're seeing, I want everyone to understand something very important. Exactly one week ago, I stood in front of you to deliver the solemn news that we had reached a, a new record high single-day increase in COVID-related deaths in Illinois. We then proceeded to hit or surpass that marker twice on the days since. We then, um, today, sorry, today is not a record, but 74 more Illinoisans 
lost their lives since yesterday's update. To the loved ones of those individuals and all who we've lost in the fight against this virus, the entire state of Illinois grieves with you. As we work to defeat COVID-19, at some point we will have fewer cases to report and fewer lives lost. That will be good news. But it doesn't change the fact that each and every life that we lose to this virus is an immense tragedy. May each and every one of their memories be for a blessing. With that said, I want to start our conversation today with one of the numbers that we watch closely, and that's our doubling rate. That's the number of days that it takes to double case counts, hospitalizations, or deaths. Why is that important? Well, because the higher that number is, the slower your growth, which means the flatter your curve. At the beginning of this pandemic, our doubling rates were very low. And since we put all our executive orders in place, Illinois has seen our doubling rates increase substantially. That is a very good thing. On March 22nd, the rate at which our COVID positive case count was doubling was just about two days. By April 1st, that rate had increased to around 3.6 days. As of this Sunday, April 12th, our case doubling rate had reached 8.2 days. Similarly, our mortality doubling rate has increased. At the beginning of April, it was at 2.5 days, and it is now at 5.5 days. To be clear, there is nothing good about twice as many people having this virus, or worse, dying from it, no matter how long the increase takes. But we won't get to zero cases overnight. The fact that our doubling rate continues to increase in every metric is a clear demonstration that there is a deceleration of virus transmission. We are, in fact, bending the curve. Perhaps the most accurate leading indicator of our progress is our hospitalization data. Right now, if someone is sick enough with a respiratory illness to need hospital care, then it's likely that that person has COVID-19, whether or not they have been tested. On April 6th, the number of known COVID patients and suspected COVID patients totaled 3,680. On April 10th, that number was 4,020. On April 11th, it was 4,104. On April 12th, 4,091. As of today, it was 4,283. As you can see, these numbers are increasing. However, so too is our overall hospital capacity. Our hospitals are working every day to add beds. In August of 2019, just to give you a number way before COVID-19 came to us, our state averaged about 25,500 total beds. As of this weekend, our total bed count is about 30,000. Two other important metrics are ICU beds and ventilators. 
A week ago, COVID patients as a percentage of ICU beds increased from 35% to 43%, an eight percentage point jump. COVID patients today occupy 40% of our total ICU beds. That's down from the 43% a week ago. In the same time frame, COVID patients as a percentage of total ventilators uh, grew from 24 to 29%, a five point jump in a week. COVID patients today occupy 25% of our total ventilators. Both of those numbers are evidence of positive trends. A declining number percentage of ICU beds occupied by COVID patients and a declining number of ventilators occupied by COVID patients. Additionally, our total ventilator numbers are starting to reflect the additional ventilators that we've acquired, now totaling more than 3,000 across the state. Overall, these numbers are indicators of our growing ability to manage capacity within the healthcare systems across Illinois. We track not only individual hospitals, but also by region. And we keep our eyes trained on the regions with capacity in any of these metrics that fall below a critical level. Though that's what we pay attention to at our daily meetings. Today, no region is currently below 15% availability in any of these metrics. But there are individual hospitals that are operating at or near max capacity. Right now, hospitals are by and large doing a great job of directing patients amongst themselves. But if it becomes necessary, I will not hesitate to step in to direct ICU patients to hospitals that are more available. And while we're talking about capacity, I am so deeply thankful for the now 3,600 retired and out-of-state healthcare professionals who have applied to join Illinois' fight against COVID-19. Before I turn it over to Dr. Azike, I feel compelled to address what it will mean when we say we've flattened the curve. Folks, this curve may not flatten, and it may go up again if we don't adhere to the stay-at-home order. We need to stay the course for now for our efforts to truly remain effective. Let me lay it out more clearly. There is no one who wants our state to open up more than I do. I want kids to go back to school and I want parents to go back to work. I want families to enjoy our parks and lakefronts. I want small businesses thriving, restaurants flooded with, rest, with reservations, job growth to return to their record highs. But no matter what the president may say, I will do what's best to safeguard the health and safety of Illinois' residents. That means test, trace, and treat. I'm hopeful the president will help us accomplish that because that's what will make it safer for people to begin to return to their normal lives. What we have to do is to design a new normal, a way of life to carry us to the other side. And while that day is not here yet, my team and I are working to bring that about, as are experts around the state and across the globe. No one looks forward to that day more than I do. And now I'd like to turn it over to our IDPH director, Dr. Ngazi Azike, for today's medical update. Doctor. 
Thank you, sir. Good afternoon. I bring today's medical report with a warm thank you first to the third graders of Pierce Elementary in Chicago's Edgewater community. Their thoughtful and colorful digital thank you cards for our public health and healthcare workers are greatly appreciated and have lifted our spirits. Thank you to those third graders for making a difference and reaching out to support others. Today I report that 1,222 new people were diagnosed with the virus and unfortunately 74 additional lives have been lost to COVID-19. That brings our total for Illinois to 23,247 cases, including 868 lives lost. Again, our deepest condolences go out to all of the families who are dealing with the loss as well as people who are dealing with their loved ones who are fighting this virus at this time. The Illinois Department of Public Health has continued to outreach to individuals who were diagnosed with COVID-19 through an electronic survey to identify people who have recovered. We sent out these electronic surveys to people to catch their recovery rate at seven days, 14 days, 21 days, and 28 days. As you can imagine, people are getting better with time. For people who don't respond to the survey, we have a staff of 23 individuals who are calling to follow up. We're making about 300 calls a day to people who didn't respond, of which approximately half of those result in a successful interview. So to share those results, I am happy to report that of the people who were surveyed at seven days, 44% have indicated recovery. At 14 days, the number increases to 50%. At 21 days after testing positive, we have 61% of people who responded either to the initial electronic survey or the follow-up te telephone call that they no longer have symptoms. And at 28 days, 69% of people reported no, no COVID-19 symptoms and feeling much better. So again, people are getting better. People recover from this disease. It is important to note that not everyone uh, responded to the survey, so potentially uh, the averages could be higher. During these uncertain times when people may feel helpless, I want to remind you all of the things that you can do, like our third graders did. They may be small, but they truly have big impact. Of course, you need to continue to stay home. We keep talking about flattening the curve, the reason that the doubling time is prolonging is because of these measures that have been, that have been dictated and that have been in, and followed. So we have to stay the course. I'm almost grateful for seeing snowflakes outside my windows to ease the temptation of people to want to be outside. I know many of you are tired of hearing this, but it will make a difference. It has been making a difference and it will continue to make a difference. If you have to leave your home, please wear a mask. Please keep fully distanced physically from other people, whether you're walking on the street, whether you're in the grocery store or the pharmacy. Keep washing your hands. Keep cleaning frequently touched surfaces. We will stay the course and together we will turn the tide. Thank you. And now I'll summarize comments in Spanish.
Buenas tardes. Comienzo el reporte médico de hoy con un gracias a los estudiantes de tercer grado a Primaria Pierce en la comunidad Edgewater de Chicago. Sus tarjetas digitales para nuestros trabajadores de salud pública y médicos son muy apreciadas y han elevado nuestro ánimo. Desde ayer, 1,222 personas han sido diagnosticadas con este virus y 60, 74 personas han perdido la batalla con COVID-19. Ahora estamos reportando un total de 23,247 casos, incluyendo 868 vidas perdidas. Nuestros sentimientos están con todas las familias y las comunidades que están sufriendo en este momento. El Departamento de Salud Pública en Illinois ha continuado en contacto con las personas que fueron positivo, positivos con COVID-19 a través de una encuesta electrónica y llamándolos directamente por, por teléfono. Hemos estado enviando encuestas electrónicamente 7, 14, 21 y 28 días después que las personas fueron positivo. También hay personas que están llamando a las personas que no han <ríe> hacer una respuesta por por el uh, survey uh, electrónico. Después de siete días, el 44% ha indicado recuperación. Después de 14 días, el 50% de las personas se han recuperado. Y después de 21 días, el 61% se dice que no había síntomas y después de 28 días, el, 70, el 69 de las personas nos informaron que no hay síntomas. Esto nos dice que hay una progresión de personas que mejoran con el tiempo. Y eso es dos buenas noticias. Alrededor un cuarto de gente que respondió ha estado en la hospital. Es importante tener en cuenta que esperamos siete días después del diagnóstico para hacer la encuesta, pero quiero preguntar a las personas cada semana después para, para saber que está mejorando. Durante este momento incierto en que las personas pueden sentirse desvalido, quiero recordarles todas las cosas que pueden hacer. Pueden parecer, parecer cosas pequeñas, pero realmente tienen un gran impacto. Quédense en casa. Sé que muchas personas están cansadas de escucharlo, pero haciéndolo va a ser una mejor diferencia en la reducción de la transmisión. Si tiene que salir de su casa, usa un máscara. Manténgase a seis piezas de distancia de otras personas. Lavarse sus manos todo el tiempo y no tocas la cara. Mantener el rumbo y juntos podemos cambiar el, cami el camino. Gracias. And with that, I will turn it over to Governor Pritzker for questions. Thank you. Happy to take any questions from members of the media.
Uh, Governor, I guess uh, I have to get the picture of you first before I can go back into the notes and look at all the questions that have come in from my colleagues. Uh, one of the things we wanted to ask you about was this regional cooperative effort that you apparently are talking about with other governors. Can you talk us, tell us you know, who you've been talking to and, and what are the parameters, what types of things are you working to coordinate on um, as you look ahead? Well, I began this conversation really late last week uh, with uh, some of the uh, East Coast governors, uh, and then uh, over the last few days with uh, my counterparts in Midwest states surrounding us, uh, you know, our goal, of course, for this is to start to think about, you know, what are the preconditions uh, for uh, beginning to uh, allow certain kinds of businesses to open their doors again, to expand the definition of, you know, those who can work or those businesses that can be, have their doors open. Um, and, and as I've said, the, the preconditions that I think are appropriate are, you know, I've talked about it a lot, testing, tracing, and uh, treating. And then I would add to that uh, the availability of PPE to the entire uh, population. Uh, even those who might not be able to afford their own PPE. So those things together, I think, are the preconditions. And, you know, there are a lot of other things to discuss. But um, governors that I've spoken with have been very, um, uh, frankly, very positive about this idea. They've all been thinking about it individually for their states and understand that speaking with a common voice might be a positive move. Is this in, in part in response to the president saying that, that he's going to be the one to dictate everything and, and he's in control, if you will? No. I, in fact, we've been, all of us, thinking about, you know, what's next? What's next? You know, we have our stay-at-home order in place, the, you know, the uh, closing of schools and so on. What comes next? What are the things that trigger a change and, you know, how much you know, how much can we do and how fast can we do it? All of that, I might add, is going to be dependent upon what we hear from the epi epidemiologists and the doctors. Let me refer back to some of the other questions from Suzanne Lemignot with uh, CBS2. Since we learned of a poll worker died, more poll workers have come forward to saying that they have had COVID-19, even though you said that you couldn't have delayed the primary, you do have the broad emergency powers to do uh, so during a situation like a pandemic. A person who worked at the polls and developed COVID-19 thinks you should have postponed early voting and the primary. Can you talk about the steps that you'll be taking for the November election to ensure the safety of workers? Well, to be clear, I did not have that power um, and do not have the power to change the date of an election, and that is what the, the issue was. Um, and so instead, I want to remind everybody that I instead encouraged everybody to uh, vote by mail, to vote early. We did that multiple days. You heard us talking about it. You know, there are 45 days before Election Day in which you can actually vote, uh, not to mention apply for a, an absentee ballot or a mail ballot. Um, I also will tell you that I think it's extraordinarily important for our state, and I would encourage other states to do the same, to have mail balloting for everybody available in the general election this year. It's clear now, and you remember that as this was developing, it, things were a little bit unclear. The science was unclear. Uh, we didn't know whether we'd see any treatment on the horizon. Um, we didn't know whether there'd be any testing and so on. Now that we look forward, we, we know what we're in for. 
before, you know, I think we have a pretty good idea that things may not be completely back to normal uh, by November because there may not be a vaccine available. And certainly if there is, it might not have been distributed as widely as we would like. And so it's very important that we allow people to vote. Democracy must continue. And so I want to encourage our legislature to pass mail balloting, to expand mail balloting in our state and across the country where they don't even have mail balloting at all. There's a second part to that question, if I might, Governor. Two poll workers that uh, CBS spoke to also said there was not enough sanitation supplies, wipes, gloves, uh, et cetera, at the polling stations. Uh, what's your response to this? And are you already working with the Board of Elections, State Board of Elections, and locals, perhaps, helping to seek out and order sanitary supplies for November so that they have what they need? Well, we were assured by the boards of elections that, uh, in fact, they had the PPE or the uh, sanitation, uh, sanitary uh, devices that they needed, um, and we were willing to provide them. Indeed, we were even willing to provide poll workers uh, for them who would be garbed in, in all of these things. Um, we were, at least in Chicago, that was rejected. Um, and so, you know, that's, that, that was their choice. They felt like they had a handle on it. Um, and and obviously, you know, the, we live in a very unusual time. There's almost no circumstance in which people are interacting in which, um, you know, there isn't at least some danger of COVID-19 being uh, transmitted to somebody. That's why we've encouraged people to stay at home now. That order didn't go in place, and we were the second in the nation by one day, less than a day, I think, um, to put it in place. But that's why we have a stay-at-home order in now and why I've encouraged everybody to wear a mask ask everywhere they go. Uh, from Vanessa Navarrete with Univision, she asks, uh, on the COVID cases, you've been giving us raw numbers. Uh, she's wondering if you can break it down by infection rate relative to the number of residents in Illinois. I'm not sure, doctor, can you, I'm not sure relative to the number of residents. I mean, it's very hard to say because we aren't testing everybody in the state of Illinois. Um, what we know is that the percentage of people who are tested, let me back up just for everybody who hasn't, uh, you know, followed this. Uh, we're testing people who show some symptoms of COVID-19. Um, and so those people who show symptoms when they're tested, it's about a 21 percent, 20 to 21 percent positive result when we test them. So 20 to 21 percent of people who are being tested, turns out they've got COVID-19. The rest, the other 79 percent, let's say, um, have something else, a cold, a, a flu, something else. So that gives you at least an idea of what the positive rate is for people who uh, are showing some symptoms. Um, she followed up also, do, do you feel that our data shows an accurate rate of infection, uh, given the fact that minimal testing early on was underway? It, it might be more useful to look at the broad global data that's available, and I'll just share that with you as well. Um, about 80% of people who get COVID-19 um, and, and by the way, we believe everybody is susceptible to COVID-19, period, end of sentence. You either have had it already or you're going to get it unless we have a vaccine that prevents you from getting it, which we don't currently. So 80% of people who get COVID-19 um, recover just fine, don't require hospitalization or anything um, of a significant medical intervention nature. Um, about 19% uh, require some further hospitalization or other intervention. 
Uh, and then about 1%, unfortunately about 0.7 to 1% um, pass away in, in many cases because they have either a comorbidity or they're in an age bracket that is most susceptible. Uh, the comptroller reported today that the state has spent $174 million, this is from Mary and Ahern, on medical supplies, ventilators costing $65,000 each. Is this mm -hmm. price gouging or is this typical prices that we're having to pay for ventilators? Well, if it's price, price gouging and we can identify it as such, we're turning, you know, we're turning that information over to the Attorney General. Um, what I would say is that this is the market that every state has been thrown into. This is what I've been talking about for a month now, that had the, governor, had the president put in place the Defense Production Act to help us with all of these items, we wouldn't be paying $5 or $6 sometimes for an N95 mask that in a normal circumstance costs 85 cents or a dollar. Um, and the same is true for some of the uh, ventilators that we're acquiring. You know, a typical ventilator uh, that's useful in an ICU situation starts, the price starts at around $25,000, maybe up to thirty-five dollars or $40,000. When we're paying more than that, that's typically because the market has bid up the prices for any available ventilators. And let me be clear, there are very few ventilators available in the entire world. We are acquiring whatever we can so that we are ready in the event that there is a spike in ICU beds and need for ventilators. Dana Kozlov asked, uh, we know there are ongoing issues with unemployment, but one woman who paid back an overpayment last year was just told by IDES that even though she qualified, she's still subject to an 18-week non-retroactive penalty and can't get benefits now. Uh, should something like that be happening during this pandemic? I don't know that particular case, but and that sounds highly unusual, and I would like it if my office could hear from that person because I, we should overcome that challenge. That doesn't sound right to me. That's all that have come in to be at the moment. Thank you. And I will turn it over to those online. Questions? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted can you speak more can you speak more specifically about the conversations that you are having with governors in the region and perhaps across the country? Mm -hmm. um, what guidelines are you what guidelines are you guys looking at and will this be happening all at once in Michigan, Illinois, Indiana? To be, you're talking about a you know, regional look at you know, how do you begin to lift things like a stay-at-home right. order and so on. Look, the conversations are very much very similar. You know, the, the, uh, each of us might have a slightly new idea to offer uh, in the conversation, but when I talk about uh, you know, testing, tracing, and treating, everybody understands exactly what that means and that we, in fact, need to do that. So widespread testing. So for example, I talked to a governor who's talking about buying a commercial lab that exists in their state and converting it entirely to testing for COVID-19. And it would yield for that governor tens of thousands of tests on a daily basis. So that's something they're looking at to deal with the testing part, right? I am looking significantly at um, not only the increases in testing that we've uh, begun to, to see at our state labs and working with our hospitals, but on the tracing part, uh, looking at uh, models like what they are doing in Massachusetts, um, where they have a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a case tracing 
uh, collaborative that exists, or at least that they've stood up, you know, it's just getting going, where they're just using good old-fashioned shoe leather to make sure and call every single person that may have come in contact with somebody who has COVID-19. Um, that's different, I might add, than the Google uh, Apple app that you may have heard about that relies upon Bluetooth to, you know, record who you've been in contact with, if you've been within a certain radius of, of some people, um, and then that would, you know, have an automatic kind of recorded uh, list of people. Uh, there's a, there are privacy issues that may be a uh, challenge to, to that, but I've also read that only a third of people would really be eligible to use that because many people either don't have um, you know, those devices or, uh, you know, or um, may not come that close to somebody who has devices. So um, anyway, we, the point is that we're all talking about all the different pieces of, you know, of testing and tracing and treating uh, that are necessary and PPE too. Um, and then, you know, and then I think we all also understand that manufacturing, every manufacturing facility is a little bit different. I talked to somebody from Ford Motor Company who was saying that, you know, when they they're building their Ford vehicles, um, they've got people standing around the body of the vehicle putting it together next to each other. How, and how they, they don't know yet how they will devise something that would keep a kind of social distance and allow those people to work near each other without being so close that they might infect one another. So how quickly is any of this really possible to roll out? How soon might you be standing here telling us that you'll be doing this widespread Tra tracing and testing? I, I can't tell you the answer. I mean, I, we're working as fast as we can to get our testing up to where we need, you know, we're standing up this, uh, this uh, case tracking mechanism, uh, uh, you know, and, and then of course there is the question of something that's completely out of the control of the governors and the president too, and that is treatment. What drug is going to be deemed to be effective? Remdesivir, hydrochloroquine, something else? Um, you know, I've heard very good things about remdesivir from the people who are doing the testing, or at least the hospitals where testing is being done, some of which are here in Chicago, uh, but they're all over the world. Uh, but we still don't have a result. Remember, they, the way they do it is a control. <laughs>
I have great confidence in my intelligence people, but uh, I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. And what he did is an incredible offer. He offered to have the people working on the case come and work with their investigators with respect to the 12 people. I think that's an incredible offer. Donald Trump shocked even his harshest critics with his submission to Vladimir Putin this week, likely including my next guest. And joining me now for your moment of Maxine, Congresswoman Maxine Waters of California. And Congresswoman, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Welcome. So were you, I think much of the country was surprised to actually see Donald Trump in action with Vladimir Putin and how submissive he was in public. What did you make of what, what happened in Helsinki? Well, I'm not surprised at all. As a matter of fact, I have for months uh, been trying to tell the American public and everybody else that this president is dangerous, uh, that he's in bed with Putin. Uh, someone said he wants to be like him, whatever. He will never, never condemn him uh, because of the relationship that they have. This didn't just start. This started a long time uh, before he was ever elected. Don't forget. This president cannot borrow money in the United States from any bank. This president is looking at Russia for his new money financial playground. He and all of his allies that I have told you are the Kremlin clan, uh, have been involved with Russia. When you name them and you think about them, why is it Manafort, Flynn, Wilbur Ross, 
Carter Page, Papadopoulos, all of his allies have connections with Russia, the Kremlin, and the oligarchs. This has been going on because this is their new money playground uh, that they want to develop. And the centerpiece of this is lifting the sanctions. I would wish people would focus on the sanctions. I think that's the agreement uh, that Putin had with this president in order to help him get elected. This president, I believe, has promised him that once he was elected, he would get those sanctions lifted. And you're going to watch. He's going to continue to try because Putin is saying to him, when is it going to happen? So he has a private meeting with him. We know what they talked about. I think I know what they talked about. They talked about lifting the sanctions. They talked about the upcoming elections. Uh, they talked about uh, all of the things that they could not talk about uh, in an email or on the phone. He had to go and meet with him in private so that he could talk about what he's going to do to follow through with what I, what I believe is his commitment to get those sanctions lifted. Don't forget, when Tillerson was there, Tillerson was there to help get the sanctions lifted. He just couldn't put up with this president. He found this president to be so outrageous uh, that he ended up leaving, but he came to be a part of helping to get these sanctions lifted. It's worth trillions of dollars. Everybody will make some money if he can get this done. Right now, Putin's hands are tied. He cannot get the equipment or the supplies that he needs to do the work because our allies are cooperating with us. So I'm not surprised about what happened in Helsinki. I'm not surprised about the private meeting. I'm not surprised about this president standing up for Putin. As a matter of fact, I think he is Putin's apprentice. He's wow. been under his toolage for a long time now, and he intends to get it done. And the American people are sitting idly by. And the Republican Party should be ashamed uh, that they're allowing this to happen. Uh, they have no guts. They have no courage. They're not standing up for America. I dare them to talk about how patriotic they are, uh, given of what they're allowing this president to do. Now they're all going to send out press releases saying, oh, we don't want you to invite Putin. Well, he's going to invite him unless the Congress of the United States and the Republicans really take some serious action. How many of the Republicans are saying, I won't come to the White House. I'm going to be outside demonstrating. How many of them saying, don't invite me to any dinner. You better not have a state dinner. How many are saying that they're just saying you shouldn't and we don't want you to do it. But I want to tell you, if they don't take strong action, to keep him from bringing him here, he's going to bring him here. And that will be another, another straw in his hat that he can point to and say, see, Mr. Putin, I'm moving this forward, what we talked about, what we're going to do. I'm going to get this done. And forget about what he did uh, with North Korea. Yeah. Uh, that's just a an effort to say that I'm doing this with both countries, and that's just an effort to say that, see, I'm trying to create peace and relationships in different ways. But the fact of the matter is his focus is on Russia and lifting those sanctions. And you're going to see him continue to try it because he has an agreement that he cannot get out of. When people want to know what does Putin have on the president of the United States, is this agreement where the president promised he was going to get the sanctions lifted and Putin is going to hold him to it.
Let me, you know, you mentioned Carter Page, uh, Congresswoman, and here is the, uh, the FISA warrant, which was released in unprecedented fashion by the FBI. Uh, we have it this morning, and uh, folks are reading through it. Um, what do you think that this, the release of this document does to the credibility of the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes? Well, you know, first of all, they've got to understand that he was put under surveillance because of the actions that he was taking, not only that caused suspicion, but I think it was deemed uh, that he basically was going to be used to spy. Uh, he's not considered to be very smart, uh, not considered to be uh, very, uh, you know, capable of uh, not of resisting, rather, uh, the Russians. And so I think that Nunes and all of them are looking very silly. I think that they should be ashamed uh, that they would in any way undermine the FBI and the FBI's work to try to protect this country from our enemy, which this president says he's not our enemy, he's just a competitor. He keeps going on like that, but the fact of the matter is uh, that Nunes and any others who have tried to undermine them to say that somehow they were unfair, somehow they were using their power uh, to interfere with the life of this man who already had been identified basically as someone who was in the grips of, uh, of Russia. Congressman Maxine Waters, never one to mince words. Thank you very much for spending some time with us on this Sunday morning. and painful death. And probably someone you know right now is suffering in silence. Bullies and leaders, these are two things we choose to be. Why is this important to me? For 20 years, I was a victim of workplace bullying and harassment as a female officer in the RCMP. And having survived, I wanted to help other people not suffer in silence. I want to share the tools I created to survive, because remaining silent, I become part of the problem. At my first detachment, I dared to speak up against two officers who thought it was funny to refer to me as Beaver and other humiliating names regarding my body parts, female body parts, in the office, in public, and on the radio so other detachments could hear. First thing I did was remember what my parents said. When kids are teasing you, just ignore it and they'll stop and it'll go away. Well, it didn't. I tried that and sadly, eventually people in the community were referring to me with those humiliating names. Second strategy was the direct approach. I went to each one and asked them to please stop calling me these names. They laughed, it continued. And doing that was terrifying because one of them was my direct supervisor. And as a result, he was in charge of my performance assessment. Third thing I did was follow the chain of command. I went to our boss, our detachment commander, our leader, and asked him to please tell them to stop calling me these names. He said, well, maybe you enjoy the attention. 
To make matters more complicated, my partner with 15 years of service arrived at work drunk. Before I could drive him home, he crashed his car into a parked car. I don't know how people do that, but they do. Fled the scene, forced another vehicle off the road, and just barely made it into his driveway by the time I caught up to him. Later, he wanted and expected and assumed I would provide a false statement as to the cause of the accident. So you can imagine what a choice. My ability to make ethical and lawful decisions was challenged because I was being bullied and intimidated. Ask yourself if you've ever said anything that was offensive or hurtful. Well, of course we have. None of us is perfect. We all make mistakes. The idea is hopefully we learn from those mistakes, we move on from those mistakes, we don't repeat them. The difference between a bully and a mistake is with the intent. The bully wants to wound, to have power over, to humiliate, and to destroy. The bully sets the stage for the target, for the victim, for anyone who's considered the other. And that can be those who don't fit into the, cha the, challenge, the culture of the organization, those who look different in skin color, as we've seen with the police shootings, those who dare to stand up and speak up against the command and control. Basically, this could be any one of us. And if no one says anything, it escalates. Bullying can start out as teasing, and because no one says anything, the violence escalates. One night in December, I came to work and I went to use a lady's washroom. I opened up the wooden stall door and it fell off the wall, landed on my face, split my forehead, and gave me a concussion. This was meant to be a joke. Three days later when I returned, the maintenance officer said, Sherry, I have no idea what happened, but it looked like somebody intentionally loosened the screws. I went to get my gun belt out of my gun locker, and I noticed it was open, and inside I had a blue gym bag. Inside the blue gym bag was a dead prairie chicken with blood dripping all over my personal things. This was meant to be a joke. So my fourth ineffective coping strategy was to try and ride that bullying wave. My fifth strategy was to change detachments. Yet even after moving station to station, nothing significant changed. And as the years rolled along, bullying incident, harassment, a shotgun training accident, disability, intimidation, threats, I, re I realized that I was going to work in a hostile work environment that was intimidating and isolating. Why do people stay? Why did I stay that long? Well, one, financial, I needed the money. I was a single mom. And it was fear, my comfort zone of fear. those feelings of being empty, a sense of hopelessness and helplessness. That voice in your head, when you're bullied enough, you start to think, there must be something wrong with me. And this hopelessness comes from a sense that nobody speaks up because people know what's happening. They see it, they hear it, but nobody does anything. And by this silence, allows and condones the bullying to continue. And being strong did not mean I was invincible. 
I still remember that January morning, 10 years ago, driving to work, and I realized, oh, my gosh, if I go to work one more day, I'm going to die. I didn't know how I was going to die. I just knew I was going to die. That night when I went to my bedroom, I reached for my sleeping pills. I wasn't thinking of tomorrow. I wasn't thinking of what I would miss. Birthdays, anniversaries, coming school grad, traveling to Europe, standing underneath that beautiful Eiffel Tower, touching the Wailing Wall, attending the United Nations in New York City, years of love and laughter and fun and giggling. The only thing I was thinking of was falling asleep and feeling nothing. And out of the corner of my eye, there was a small school photo of my daughter. And in that micro split second of hesitation, that same voice said, I can't do that to her. You see, to be in that pit of despair and to climb out to a place of empowerment, well, that came in stages. I had, be, I had to begin to be curious about why some people believe, truly believe they have the right to behave a certain way. I had to really be curious about my own pattern, my own personal history. Is there something I need to change? Because I can't change them. The only thing I have complete control over is me. How I deal with things, how I react. And I created my toolkit, my survival toolkit. Number one, document, document, document. I began to document the incidents of bullying way back in the beginning. And it was really just a form of journaling. I wrote down dates, times, places, who said what, when and where. The good, the bad, and the ugly, including my mistakes. And if anything, it gave me the power of my voice to say, hey, this is what's happened to me. This is what I tried to do. This is what didn't work. This is what did work. And by journaling it, it was the power of my voice. And I thought, in 2007, I thought, you know what? Maybe this could be a book. Maybe I could write something and help somebody else so they didn't get to that point of despair. Because not everybody gets that sober second thought. I'm a very visual person. I like to write little, I had to write little stickies and I put them all around the house, in the bedroom, one right by my clock so when I turned off my alarm it said, wake up every morning with positive thoughts. That's a choice. I put them in the ba bathroom. I put them, my husband sometimes would open up a drawer and, the, and there'd be a little sign that says, I love you. I put them in a car and I put them at work. So when I was getting dumped on and felt like crap, I would look, open up the drawer and take a little note and then I would see a little, little saying that says, you are good, you are valued, you are important and you count. This might not work for everybody in the audience, but this is nail polish and it's orange. In case you notice, that's my favorite color. Every Thursday, either before I went to work or after I went to work, I would paint my nails. If it was before work, I would do it with my daughter. It was a little bit of bonding time. If it was after work, then I would do it by myself with a nice cup of tea. It was something little, and it was very cheap. But it made me feel strong about me so I could go back and face another week 
of abuse. I don't know about you, but exercise is important. It, when you are under a lot of stress, it helps you deal with stress, gets rid of that negative energy, it helps with your heart, it helps with your sleeping patterns, and it makes you feel strong so that you don't feel as intimidated physically. I got to know my policies, procedures, rules and regulations inside and out so that when I was being abused, I knew more about the information that the bully was trying to play a trick on me and I could prepare documents to say, no, this, this and this. Of course, it made me more of a target. But the point was, I knew more information about their system than they did. I went back to school. The first class I took was management assertiveness training. Because when people are bullied and abused, they lose their voice. They, and I'm not just talking about at work. I'm talking about at home, too. They lose the sense that they have a right to say no. They have a right to change their mind. And the most important relationship is with ourselves, learning to value ourselves, developing boundaries on behaviors I will accept and behaviors I will not accept at home and at work. I continue to take classes in conflict resolution. My university marks do not reflect my 25% in high school chemistry. Thankfully, when my daughter saw my transcript, she said, Mom, you're a loser in high school. Everything, I've, everything I learned at university, I practiced at home with my family, my friends, and specifically at work. Learning the importance of effective communication and listening skills and the relationship that has in any conflict. Developing eye messages when you're dealing with a bully or someone who is more con confrontational. For example, when you call me beaver in the workplace, I feel humiliated. Please stop. When you take me into your office and you yell at me for 20 minutes and call me stupid, I feel embarrassed. Please stop. You see, a bully is used to a certain way of responding, and when you change that, maybe that will change the dynamics. Either way, you've taken back your power, and maybe others will speak up. No, I'm not giving myself a haircut. This is detaching from the bullying behavior, not engaging in the abusive pattern, understanding that everybody has their own personal history and you have no idea what's going on with someone else's life. The idea is to be curious, compassionate, and forgiving with yourself as well as with others. But this is not an invitation to be a doormat or a punching bag, either at home or at work. Developing hobbies that are fun, energetic, that make you feel good about you. I, per I love to bake. I find that very relaxing, pounding out the dough. So you might have your own, your own toolkit that works for you. Developing your own toolkit that fits with who you are. The idea is that we really only see a snapshot of people and that if we shift to curiosity instead of judgments, then maybe we can get along a little bit better. The idea is to never give up. Never give up. And it's never too late to expand your comfort zone. I've been trying to address the systemic problem of bullying since 1998. And it's been, it was my mission to the moon 
in 2013 when I was asked to be part of the Senate Committee on how to change the culture of the RCMP. I was also asked to provide input on what it is like for victims. Nothing's gonna change my love for you You wanna 
Hatred from the mighty and the mighty from the small. 